Hi everyone, welcome to today's edition of Scouting for Growth. Today, I am meeting with Elisa Vlerek, a partner at 9.5 Ventures, the venture capitalist dedicated to corporate venturing. What I love when I read Elisa's profile is that Elisa loves removing syntax complexity from the proverbial crap applying creativity and execution to everything she does. So welcome, Elisa. Thank you, Sabine. Thank you for those poetic words. <laughs> I love reading that about you on your profile on the website. And I understand that you are the most comfortable with complexity. Et le, le bonheur est dans l'action. So I would love to hear a bit more about you and what drove you to become a VC? Actually, I have a non-VC program. I used to be an M&A lawyer, worked at a big law firm for a long time, then went uh, on to doing an MBA to sort of broaden the scope because I couldn't imagine myself writing contracts for the rest of my life. Okay. I did that and then I went, I continued in, in the M&A space uh, for a few big corporates and went on to joining an investment fund. And by chance, I met the team uh, and I loved the idea of corporate venturing, uh, which differentiates from, from, let's say, traditional you know, VC activity in the sense that you have the, the power or the leverage of a corporate to, to go faster, to scale faster, to, be, to have what we call an unfair competitive advantage in the market. And that really attracted me. And so there were a team of three already when I met uh, my colleagues, the other partners, and they were desperately looking for a woman to join the team, or at least for some diversity. And they didn't have anyone with, an, with a sort of financial legal background yet in the team either. So this fitted perfectly with the other, um, let's say, the other profiles. The, one of the founders is a next entrepreneur, founded his own company, build it up from a 20 million business to a 200 million business together with a private equity player. Another uh, of the partners is a venture builder who actually had the idea, that's Peter, huh, who had the idea of founding the company based on his own frustration, helping a lot of corporates uh, to innovate, to develop new business models, but never being able to actually build those businesses and realize that often the projects got stuck and went nowhere. Um, so he had the idea of building a fund which actually supports corporates to, to go from ID to action. And then the third one is, a, is, a, is has more than a typical investment profile. Uh, used to work at PE and VC funds before. So I, I was, a, I think, a good, you know, fourth wheel on the wagon. And, uh, and that makes, I think, our team very, very interesting because we come all from different angles and, and, and that makes our decision-making process and our investment process all the more uh, interesting and, and hopefully better. Which takes so me... That's how it happened. So a little bit of chance. Yeah, no, it, it's fascinating because um, serendipity was part of the equation here. 
And that takes me to what corporate venturing means. You started defining us, defining this for us. But, you know, for the um, people who may not know well why, why you would do corporate venturing, can you explain to us what that means and why you're doing it? So why are we doing it? We think it's uh, a gap in the market in the sense that there are a lot of traditional VC funds with or without industry focus uh, active all over the world or even in Europe. We have never heard of, we know a few players who are venture builders. What is a venture builder? That's an agency supporting usually big corporates, any type of company in developing new innovative business models. So where, where is our industry going and how can we play in that space without having to overturn our current business? And very often there's a lot of resistance within companies to start cannibalizing on their own business, to start new ventures, which are often very small when, it's, when we're talking about a billion dollar company, it's hard to start something new, which is not totally fitting into the existing company. So we're not talking just about launching a new product on the market, it's launching a new business model. And, and, and that's where it's difficult. One, people don't want to cannibalize on what they're doing. Two, people don't always have the skills to build a new business model. They don't have the right people to do it. And three, there's also not the appetite because it's often so small compared to, to the rest of the business, so it doesn't get the attention it deserves. And taking those factors into account, we figured that just being an agency and supporting them in developing the business model is not enough. They really need more support. They actually need, that's what we believe, a fund that coexists with them, that excubates their venturing activity, and that mimics a normal startup with the unfair competitive advantage of, of the, the corporate, corporate, bringing in some resources. So you try to sort of make the best of both worlds, make a startup that's independent, that doesn't get suffocated by the corporate, that gets all the attention it deserves from its two investors, that gets people on board who are incentivized as founders and who have the skills for that specific business opportunity with often a more ticky profile than, than maybe you could find in the traditional corporates. Right? Because most of the startups we build with corporates do have a tech uh, component because it's around innovation. So usually there is an important um, tech component there. And, and, and that sort of combination of ingredients, yeah? finding the right entrepreneurs who are not corporate people, taking the whole business unit or the whole activity outside the corporate, but still fueling it with resources from the corporate and with our knowledge in building startups, makes a startup that is actually more better placed in the market than, than let's say another startup without the corporates uh, around to help to, to, to support it. Th that's the theory of it. Huh? 
It's a great definition, and I will stretch that a little bit. So, you know, my, my definition of corporate venturing, I think, include two pillars. The scouting for venture and uh, really understanding where potentially the new business model may come from. So in the world I live in, we uh, scout for ventures and try to identify new business models, which may be relevant for insurance companies but also to help them disrupt themselves. So we love uh, talking about the McKinsey Three Horizon, you know, efficiency, innovation, product innovation, you mentioned, and game-changing innovation, which is a business model innovation. So that is the first area. And what we do with the corporate mm -hmm. is helping them understand maybe how to partner, you know, with those ventures and start investing in them, you know, get their foot, dirty and get started on the path of corporate venturing. Second path is absolutely yours. You know, building a phone, working with the corporates and helping them build, scale, launch amazing new business models which are not in conflict with the core business and the SQ. But that, te that takes a lot of time and effort. So my next question to you is how do you convince the corporates today to actually see the light, not cannibalizing their core business, so considering corporate venturing as a way to scale, grow, and build the billion dollars companies of tomorrow, and then allocate the resources, Elisa, because resources here are important too. Yeah, thank you, Sebi. I think they are convinced of their own. If they don't innovate, someone else would do it and they lose the, the competitive you know, play. So they are convinced. Why are they convinced to do it with us? Because often they've tried, they've done things on their own, sometimes they've succeeded. Very often they sort of run against a wall or at least they encounter a lot of hurdles. And then when they hear how we go about it, sort of venturing, doing a venture buyout, they often instinctively, knowing what they've been doing before, spending a lot of money on innovation often, and they feel for it. Because we also always tell them, we've got more to lose than you do. We are a small fund, 35 million capital. You are a huge corporate, a billion dollar company. So you can waste a few millions and it's not, it's not going to hurt you. If we waste a few millions, the fund is no longer going to exist. So our raison d'être is to make money on our investment. So if you do it together with us, not only do you only have to put in part of the investment, but also do you know that you're actually partnering with someone who has much more to lose than you do. And I think that convinces them, together with the rest of the story that I already told you, uh, that actually doing a venture by external, externalizing um, their innovation uh, is good for, uh, it benefits them in the long term because it helps their innovative companies to go much faster. That together with you know the, the sort of, we've got more to lose than you do, um, convinces them we are the right partner. So how do you balance financial return you said we are 25 million fund, so therefore we cannot waste resources and money with strategic returns, which is often, I think, what corporate venture 
corporations are looking for? Yeah, so that is the one thing we start off with. Strategic returns, that's not our business. The reason why we build a venture together with them is because it's of strategic interest. But what we want to build together with them is a successful company with financial returns. So if strategic returns are not in coherence or are not aligned with the financial objectives that we have, we're not the right partner. Then you should, that, that, and that may be a good reason not to partner with us. And I'm not saying that strategic returns never have a good place, but usually they come to us because they've actually realized that they never had financial returns. And in the end, even for a big, big corporate, strategy and financial returns need to be aligned. Huh? It can be short term that it's strategic and you know we're just going to put, keep putting money because it's so strategic. But at some points, this strategy needs to translate into return. If we, if they come to us, it's because they've actually done too much strategy and too little return. Uh, a so. good way actually to put it, balance between financial and strategic outcomes. So when you build your venture teams, what are you looking for? How do you make sure that there is this equilibrium with uh, the, the, the idea that is going to be launched into a new business model and the people you are bringing in to get the job done? This is the key to our success, huh? finding the right people to make it happen. So you can make a lot of slides, have a great plan, great financial plan, modeling, you know, a multi-million dollar company in a few years time, but it needs to happen. And it can only happen if the team is there. The way we go about it is that we mimic a traditional startup. We look for an entrepreneur who's done it before, who's co-investing with us, sizable amount. So who's putting his own skin in the game? And that's the whole model we go by. We put skin in the game, but we ask them to put skin in the game. We double that up, triple that, quadruple that with options, huh? like in a normal like option scheme. And that's how we incentivize them. We actually responsabilize them. It's your company, you're putting your own money. And we incentivize them, make sure that we're also giving you, you know, a an, an enormous bonus and equity. So you feel this is your company. And usually we start with one hire, sometimes two hires, depending on the type of company. And we ask them to build their team with our support. Um, sometimes we have a great entrepreneur for the first phase, just to get a product launch. And then we find ourselves having to look for another entrepreneur for the growth phase. It happens. It happens because they tell us they want to leave, they've done what they could, they're not the right person anymore, or it can happen that we realize this is not the right person anymore. Um, so in that sense, we are flexible, um, maybe a little more flexible than a traditional startup where the founder is sometimes hard to, to remove whenever, even if he's no longer the right person on the right spot. That makes us a little bit more flexible. But for the rest, we really try to mimic as much as possible a traditional um, startup. So 
It's interesting because, you know, when I speak with founders, I often tell them that it's good to recognize that they may not be the best person for the growth and scale stage. And actually what you are saying is recognition of that is very powerful. And you recognize that as you build those ventures and probably have the conversation day one with the founders. So what could be some tips you could actually give the founders out there? Because I think some feel that they have failed, you know, some feel that if they are not going the whole way through with their ventures, they may have failed. But actually, I don't think so. Actually, our jobs is to enable other people to get the job done so that we may go on the beach on holiday at some point, right? Exactly. I would say like rule number one or, or advice number one is surround yourself by people who are better than you and who dare go against the tide, you know, who dare be critics. You know, real founders often have trouble finding people, I yeah. think, who dare, you know, have another opinion. And that makes you so much stronger in the team when there is people who are capable and willing to to question and 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 to criticize what's happening you're going to make better decisions and i think the other point which i i value so much from what you said elisa is stick in the game you know until you put your own money right and it's 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 significant money you actually do not feel the pain and so you need to feel that pain to actually be involved with that project and being able to put your own money and like uh, the friends and family, you know, when you we usually talk to startups is we want to see you've put your own money into your company before you can go to angel investor or even VCs. And so what you're also validating is that is key as well to create a successful company. Absolutely. That sense of ownership because they have skin in the game. Absolutely. So, can I ask you, what are the trends? What are the trends you are looking for today? How do you make choices around so many things happening in our world? Um, I'm sure you're not going and betting on everything. You are selecting things which are going to lead to game-changing business model. Can you share with us what those are and examples? Yeah, so we are a little bit different from a normal VC that's usually industry focused. So they could tell you a lot about a specific industry and, and, and where they see the disruption coming from. In that sense, we are really different because we get that information from the corporate. They tell us we see this disruption and we want to be part of it. And then we engage. So, of course, we've seen disruption in many different spaces, but there's some spaces that don't really you know, match with our type of uh, activities. I'm thinking of biotech. I think in the biotech sector is crazy what's happening now. It's just life, the, the whole life sciences sector is, I think in 20 years time, medicine will look very, very different from today. But this is not the space we're in. So focusing on our space, which is more um, B2B or B2C kind of tech, um, very generally, we see a lot of disintermediation, a lot of platform business. Uh, and, 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 and we can help companies be part of that, uh, building platforms with them uh, to actually be much quicker, more efficient, closer to their customers than with the case before in a more traditional sort of industrial relationship where you had two, two three, four intermediaries before the product to the final customer 
Uh, we see that in country tech a lot. We see that in direct-to-consumer type of businesses. Um, we see it everywhere. So I would say, like for our investment focus, um, the the platforms and disintermediation would be you know, two key terms. So there is two parts to my next question. You mentioned that you look for tech entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, amazing people who have done it before. And um, the first part of my question is, how do you reconcile the tech part with the business part? Because when I work with my startups, what I realize often they are tech people. And where I can help them the most is with their B2B go-to-market strategy, their social media, you know, designing a profile, partly when they want to fundraise. At some point, they need to be out there. And we need to work probably for a year before they actually fundraise because mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. they are renowned. The second part is now a lot of VCs and corporate venture fund are working really hard on the sustainability front, which means so many different things to different people. And diversity, equity and inclusion is key part of how they make decisions because having women on the board and having women in the team is key to fulfill the need of the customer of the future. How do you reconcile the two, Elise? So need for tech profiles and need for diversity. Mm -hmm. So good question. Well, I, you know, I suppose the assumption is that techie people are not female. Um, you know, it's funny because in, in the UK, we have a mass, massive problem. You know, we are not enough uh, ladies doing STEM courses. And so even, you know, when you balance tech and insurance, in my case, 25% of founders uh, may be female founders, at least in insure tech. So it's very small, as, as you can see. It's, it's so small. I think it's like the doctors, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, like 90% of doctors were male and 90% of um, uh, les infirmières, of um, yeah, nurses. <laughs> nurses. <laughs> nurses were female. And now it's 50-50 in terms of doctors. I think there's even more female doctors today than male because usually girls are a little bit more serious when they study. And so this is a tough, um, you know, this is a tough course to become a doctor and a lot of girls graduate. Um, I think it's a matter of time. So give it, you know, another 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and this will equal out. There's some, you know, legends or maybe there's some truth in them that, that, that that women are less, are more risk averse, are maybe less daring. And there's something to that. And I think it's more of a cultural problem than maybe an intrinsic problem that, that, female, that women have. And I think one, once that this sort of idea that they are less able to build from scratch, because in the end, it, you know, it's building something new, it's really daring in a sense. To, 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 to found a startup and I, once that idea is gone and if we just give it some more time I don't see a reason why this wouldn't go up to sort of a 50-50 yeah. might be wrong but um, that would be great vision. that would be wonderful if we see 50-50 and you know as you said it might be just about time right time and uh, a generation often we, we talk about for, for things to realign and when you look at your teams, how do you make sure that there is the right balance 
around, uh, you know, serving the customer. You mentioned some of the business model you're looking at are B2C. So therefore, the C being Gen Zs or millennials or LGBTQ or, you know, women health. So, you know, you need the people in the team to understand and empathize with that customer. How do you make sure that your teams do that as well? We build incredibly diverse teams, I would say. We have one beauty company, it's a D2C beauty company. And, um, and that team is actually 70% female, I would say, because um, beauty is often considered more female. But actually, with that product, we're trying to launch more an androgynous sort of um, product, nice. also, uh, also targeted at, 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 at men. Um, but more generally, we really sort of make sure to build diverse teams. And then we're going beyond male-female ratios. We're also looking at geographies, especially when we want to launch in different uh, geographies. We're also looking at age, seniority. We're also looking, obviously, at backgrounds, skills. So it, it, it's like a, a full picture. Um, but you, you, you will not see any of our ventures where there's no balance. Uh, there will always be, you know, both, um, both men and women represented. Uh, I'm not saying in equal amounts always, but most of the time, very much so. Because as you say, half of the audience, not always, but in general, half of the audience, especially in the B2C context, is female. Yeah. What I find with the beauty with corporate venturing, so working with corporates, is I think sometimes that balance is required because they recognize it in their own environments. Um, when you look at the venture uh, capitalist world, and I assume, and tell me if I'm wrong, that sometimes your ventures will reach and, and, and receive funding from VCs as well. It's not just fully funded by your corporate venture capital arm. How easy, if you have, you know, female founders, for them to to receive funding? And it's an important question because a lot of female founders out there find it really hard to get funding from VCs. Because there's still that uh, that sort of bias against uh, female founders. I, I can I can relate to that, and I think it's probably true. And um, there is in Belgium. I'm not sure. If, this is the case in many other countries, a VC fund that specializes in funding female founders just to sort of bridge that gap, you know, to, to overcompensate the issue or to compensate for, for the problem. Um, and I think that's a great initiative. Yeah. I hope that very soon, you know, the female male founder will be, you know, totally unimportant, trivial that it will not impact any decision-making, and it should not. Um, and I'm sure that we'll get there, um, especially once female founders also start getting great track records. Yeah. Um, and it's starting to happen, I'm sure. It's, it's starting to happen. It's just, a, I hope it's just a matter of time. Maybe I'm naive. <laughs> it should be a matter of time. And you know, when we, we look at the equation, so when I, I coach a female, founders, at the end of the day, it still remains about financial metrics and um, understanding the, the VC, I would call it the VC journey. You know, I build VC campaigns. At the end of the day, it has to be thought through 
uh, from a commercial mind and you have to eat all the milestones all the you know all the content all the proposition um, value proposition business model all these need to be thought through carefully when you're actually putting things on paper and i know you you decompose and you look at really complex business models and take you know that complexity out of it to take out the bullshit so it's really making sure that whatever is on on paper is true and can be broken from any angle by the VC to make sure that they're funding the right ventures as well. So I don't think it's a gender issue at the end of the day. It's making sure that the metrics and the content is right for the buyer. Absolutely. So I realize we're going, we are arriving, reaching, uh, you know, toward the end of our interview. But when I look at um, sustainability, which is a very big and uh, topical uh, themes this year with environmental, social and governance um, metrics becoming key within corporate uh, venture funds. How are you dealing with this as you build your next ventures, Elisa? We're actually um, having a few portfolio companies that are actively um, working towards the SDG goals. We've got one venture that is making soups, powder soups from overproduced vegetables. And that actually reduces food loss in two ways. First, because there is an overproduction that when it's rotting on the fields, causes CO2 emissions, which are totally you know, pointless because it's not even eaten. Huh? And secondly, it, uh, because it's a powder soup, it has an eternal shelf life and you can never really have to waste the, the, the powder soup. And, and our go-to-market strategy with that company is um, towards uh, big, uh, big corporates uh, which have uh, an, an important SDG um, agenda and uh, for their offices. And so, just so, so we do two things for them. Huh? We said, this is a great healthy soup because the usual powder soups on the market are quite crappy. Uh, there's like maybe 5% of vegetables in there. We've got a 100% veggie soup that is as healthy as, as fresh soup, as tasty as fresh soup. And on, and on top of that, it actually uh, reduces or at, at least um, helps fight climate change to some extent. Uh, so we feel not only that it's good and that it's our duty to invest our money in ESG sort of impact and impactful businesses to, to use a broader term. We also think it's interesting financially. So yeah. what is great here is that we are moving towards a, a world where the two go together, where you don't have to make a lot of financial compromises because you want to be an impact fund. Rather, you know, focusing on impact investing is actually going to generate better returns because this whole world is waiting for those type of initiatives, startups being there. So, so we are absolutely looking into it without being an impact uh, investment fund because we are focused on corporate venturing. That's what we do. We will never engage in anything that's negative in terms of ESG, and we will actively pursue opportunities uh, which have a positive impact. 
That's super cool. So, and I think you're so you're highlighting language, right? When we often talk about impact, impact investing, we think, I'm sorry to say that, but sometimes we think about charities and we don't always think about financial returns and profit. At the end of the day, the only way we can help the planet, people, is through profit. If we make profit, we can reinvest it. And it's about that responsibility uh, for corporations to do that. And therefore funds as well, to do that alongside the corporates in an effective way. So maybe the word, as you said, is responsible investing, um, needs to be potentially adapted to make sure that there is a P, P and P uh, consideration as part of the choices. It's a perfect planet. Yes, Yes. absolutely. We see it very broadly, not as charity. Um, That's super cool. So what would be your last word of wisdom? Uh, one, you know, one side of the question I would love for you to think through is today, I would say you're a corporate venturist, corporate venture capitalist. If you were talking to Elisa 20 years before, what would you tell her? Keep going and have fun. Nice. Beautiful words. You know, today, I think we need to be able to balance the fun with the work. And when we build actually ventures, it's a lot of hard work and long nights often. Um, sometimes I said to my startup, you know, my, my brain is hurting right now. And so it's being able to accept that, but at the same time having fun. So thank you, Elisa, for, for being with us today and sharing with us your word of wisdom. Really grateful for your time. Thank you, Sabine. It was great talking to you. Thank you. If you like this podcast, subscribe now, share with your friends. And if you enjoyed it, please give it a five-star review. Also, if you want to cover any specific subject with me, contact me on Instagram under Sabine VDL Officials or LinkedIn under Sabine van der Linden. Thank you.